What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So reads the word of God. As we've heard already this morning, this passage primarily addresses the people of Huna, Alaska. But we're going to believe that maybe there's even more richness that might come by looking a little farther back in history and seeing where it first came from. Actually, just teasing the team. This is a great passage to pray for this group. We have heard some amazing promises in Romans regarding the benefits of our salvation. We just rehearsed one or two of them in our assurance of faith this morning. We've heard things like the Spirit helps us when we don't know what to pray. We've heard that Jesus is interceding for us at the Father's right hand. Think about that. That's amazing. Think about that in your circumstances this morning. Jesus, who laid down his life for all who believe, is interceding for them before the throne today. We've learned that God will not withhold any good thing from us. Indeed, we've heard that he works all things together for his good in each and every one of our lives. These are some amazing promises, and we could keep going. It's only natural, then, to sense some need for reassurance that these promises can really be trusted. That they're not too good to be true. And that's especially so when they resonate so closely with God's promises made to Israel under the Old Covenant, which could easily seem to us like they are not being kept. As we've mentioned before, this is the key reason why Paul has headed off into the deep theological waters of Romans 9 through 11. It's to reassure us on that very point. And what we've heard so far is that right from the beginning of this passage, God's word has not failed. God's word has not failed in any way to anyone at any time ever. God's word has not failed. 
We can trust the Word of God. Not only did he, in this case that we are looking into with Israel, not only did he not promise to save everyone in the physical line of Abraham, we actually learn here that he was explicit in his plan. We read it in the Word of God. It was explicit that he would save only a remnant from the sons of Israel. We saw that in verse 27 last week, quoting from Isaiah 10. And yet now, once Israel's Messiah has been identified, many Gentiles are receiving him. That could confuse us as well. Many Gentiles are receiving him, but most from Israel are not. What in the world is going on here? This is one of those things where we could read it and think, oh, that's too deep for me. I'm going to move on and go to something easier to grasp. Well, I would urge you not to do that. We've seen the fruit of these passages, these chapters, this section of Scripture already, and we're not even fully a third of the way into it yet. So what in the world is going on here? How are we supposed to understand this? Well, there's a, a key part to the answer that we won't hear until we're well into chapter 11. In short, God is hardening the hearts of Israel in judgment right now, not unlike he did with Pharaoh, as we've already seen in chapter 9. But we'll get to that part in due course. There's another part of the answer that Paul has just finished explaining right here in the text that we're looking at this morning. A couple of points of review. First, unless God intervenes and saves by his sovereign grace, no one will believe at all. Or maybe that would be more clearly stated, no one at all will believe unless God intervenes and saves by his sovereign grace. And second, we've heard that it was always his plan to save Gentiles in addition to Jews. We saw that in verses 22 through 26 last Sunday. Building on the foundation of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. But then yet another key question remains. And that's the one that leads off our passage this morning. We've been led up to this place where the question of 930 is being posed. And we need to look at it. But before we get to that this morning, we need to comment on just where we are in Romans as a whole. I think that would be helpful. Today's section really continues through chapter 10, verse 13, even though we're stopping at chapter 10, verse 4. You can see that in the text as you're reading Romans. You can see that the salvation of the Gentiles is in the crosshairs as that section 930 through 1013 both begins and ends. And, and both the beginning and the ending include a quote of, from Isaiah 28 that comes in verse 3933 and then again in verse chapter 10 verse 11. But we're going to take just this section this morning that we're going to take that whole section in two parts. So we're cutting it in half, uh, much as we did earlier in chapter 9. The first four verses of, of our passage today, which are the last four verses of, of Romans 9, verses 30 to 33, are really an introduction over the content that goes all the way through chapter 10. 
So in a sense, it's, it's an on-ramp into chapter 10. And really, an introduction to all that's written there, establishing the contrasting righteousness of Israel and the Gentiles in order to understand this big question more fully. Then the second part in this paragraph from 9.30 to 10.13 is chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, which will heretofore be known as the Huna, Alaska section. (laughs) I'll let that go at some point. It identifies what Israel is missing with regard to Jesus and the law. Then the remainder of this paragraph, verses 5 through 13, is given as explanation, and that's what we'll get to next Sunday, God willing. So let's look at the two parts of today's section. This paragraph comes in three parts, and we're going to look at the first two of them. And you can see the outline that we're going to follow there this morning. First of all, a contrast in receptivity to the gospel... 9.30 to 33, and then the difference maker in that contrast, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. The outline sounds like a theology lesson. It isn't. There's a lot of practical help for us here. There is some theological insight, but even the theological insight is practically helpful. All right? So hang in there, and let's go through these two sections and see what we learn here, because I think it's going to be something that's beneficial to us as a body of believers. Let's look at the two parts of today's section. First of all, a contrast in receptivity to the gospel. Now to that question that Paul poses next that we introduced just a couple of minutes ago. Look at verse 30. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? Jump to verse 31. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? There's the question. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Verse 32, why? It's a great question at this point in Paul's argument. Why is this so? This is a salvation that's coming through Israel. Yet Israel's turning their back on it and Gentiles are coming to saving faith. Why? What do we learn from that? By the way, this should be important to us all because by and large, we're part of that group that's embracing the gospel. What sets us apart then? And how can we be sure, this part we won't get to this morning, how can we be sure that our status with God is any more reliable than Israel's appears hugely important. So why? For those who want to affirm, I'm going to take a little theological parenthesis here, for those who would want to affirm that God's sovereignty in salvation logically removes human responsibility for sin and for unbelief, this is a great chance for Paul to affirm that line of thought and say something like, it's because God has chosen the Gentiles at this time and place, but hasn't chosen the Jews. It's on Him. But that's not how Paul answers here. That's not what the Word of God teaches. In answering this question, why the difference in Jewish and Gentile responses to the gospel, he's actually expanding on the answer that he gave to his question back in verse 14 of chapter 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? 
since he's the one who determines who receives his salvation. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, remember, was the answer. One of the ten times that answer appears in Romans. Paul's already explained that God is not unjust because unless he opens the eyes of our hearts, no one at all will savingly believe. Now he's explaining the other side of this work, the human side, namely what the unconverted are bent on doing instead of receiving and believing in Christ. And that's where he goes. Just as he said back in chapter 1, we are without excuse just because of what we see in the world around us. At least God's eternal power and his divine nature are evident in what we see. Paul is going on here and saying, even though God is gracious and merciful to save, the responsibility for our unbelief lies upon us, and that is the just basis of our judgment. So Paul is continuing on in this instruction. Why have Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness attained it, but Israel who pursued a law that leads to righteousness didn't attain it? There's our question. Why, verse 32? Well, the answer follows immediately. Because they, Israel, did not pursue it by faith. There's the answer. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. There is the problem. Paul foreshadowed this difference, this contrast, as he described what the Gentiles actually attained there in verse 30, the part we jumped over in order to hear the question clearly. The difference is that the Gentiles attained a righteousness that is by faith. They believed in Christ as he was presented. We might say here, and I find this very helpful, Israel hears God's righteous standard and says, I can do that. The Gentiles hear it and say, I can't do that. God help me. There's the difference when it comes to the gospel. We want to know what justifies us before God, what reconciles us to God. There it is. We hear what God expects, and we either respond by saying, all right, I can do that, or by saying, I can't do that followed by, God help me. The whole difference. Israel pursued the law as if the righteousness it promised were attained by works. Now we know from earlier in this letter that this approach will never work. But even so, Paul finishes this on-ramp into chapter 10 with a composite Old Testament quotation which shows that this response from Israel, very important to his argument here, this response from Israel is no surprise at all. It was foreseen by the Old Testament prophets. So this isn't just some development that caught God off guard. Wow, didn't work with the Jews. I guess I'll move on to the Gentiles. Paul is saying this was stated in the Old Testament that this is how it would work. 
Verse 32, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, Paul writes. Verse 33, as it is written explicitly in Isaiah 28 and Isaiah 8 together, Isaiah 28, 16, together with Isaiah 8, 14, but context surrounding each of those verses. He puts this together saying, Behold, I, lay, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The stone that was laid in Zion was going to cause the stumbling. And a rock of offense. And then from Isaiah 10, verse 11, there's the composite part. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So some are going to stumble, some are going to believe. Paul is saying by this quotation, this is exactly what Scripture said was going to happen, and now it's playing out. Don't stumble over it again might be the instruction that could well follow the reading of these quotes. So whoever believes they can attain the righteousness the law promises by good works or in any other way apart from faith in Christ will surely be put to shame, according to this text. And those who trust in him will not. There's the difference that we're seeing played out even as Paul is unpacking this deep discussion in chapter 9. Now these quotes from Isaiah 28 and 8 and 10 could really fuel a rich complementary study to what we're doing here in Romans. But in short, and for our purposes here this morning, and in order to stay in line with the, the argument that Paul is making here, let's just say in summary that Christ is that stone which God placed in Zion. And to quote one commentator, the foundation for a new people of God, the keystone of his plan of salvation, that's the stone he laid in Zion, that's where the metaphor is pointing. Yet rather than building on that stone, putting their faith in it, Israel stumbled over it instead, thinking that it was by good works and not by faith that they would build on that foundation. Fully missing the fact, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians three, eleven. Well, that leads Paul then into the thought progression that unfolds in the second part of this three-part paragraph, which is the last part we're going to look at today, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10. That's what led Paul into the thought progression that's there. And that's exactly what we see in those four verses is a progression of thought. It opens with an emphasis similar to that which opened chapter 9, quite similar in fact, reminding his readers at this point that he hasn't wandered from his point even while navigating these deep theological waters that we've referenced since the last time that he made this statement. You see in verse 1, which is so much like the beginning of, of chapter 9, brothers and sisters, and I add that and sisters, you can see it in the footnote in your text, but it is that Greek word that actually includes both. That's not reading something into the text that isn't there. Um, I, I do that frequently, but just in case you have never heard me mention why, uh, there would only be a few of you here in that category, but it's good to keep in front of us. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer for God, a prayer to God for Israel, 
is that they may be saved. He's saying it straightforwardly. Now, remember, he swore himself to truthfulness when he said this before, as though on a level that he hasn't said about anything else of his proclamations. And here he's, he's coming back to that point that he so deeply affirmed back in chapter 9. Then he proceeds to explain exactly what's gone wrong here, why it is that this difference is happening between Israel and the nations. We already know from his introduction to this section, verses 30 to 33 of chapter 9 that we just walked through, that the Gentiles placed their trust in Christ to attain the righteousness of God where Israel didn't. But we've not yet heard how that happened. What, what made the difference between them, the difference in their responses? Paul lays that out in a series of four statements here. As you see, in verses 2 and 3 and 4, it actually goes on into chapter verse 5, which is what we'll leave for next week, but a whole series of four statements after that opening affirmation that he, his heart's desire and prayer to God is that Israel may be saved. So each of these next three statements in verses 2 and 3 and 4 are explaining the statement that came prior to it, giving you the ground for it. So what has impeded Israel's salvation that Paul is praying for so earnestly now? What has impeded that? Verse 2, he himself can attest to the fact, summarizing what that opening says, he himself can attest to the fact that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That's why he's praying for them, that they would be saved. The reason they're not, the reason they're going in this direction of good works is because they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. And what a scary statement that is. Does that make you tremble a bit as you hear it? It should. To recognize that you can have a zeal for God that is not according to knowledge and it equates to not being reconciled to God. In other words, you have no relationship with God. You haven't savingly believed. You can be zealous for God and not a believer. All at the same time. And that's what Paul is saying is Israel's problem. It's possible to be zealous for God even without understanding Him in the most basic of ways, meaning without receiving His salvation, without being reconciled to him by faith in Jesus Christ, and yet the zeal is still there. Israel had that. Israel is proud of her heritage, proud of her blessings from God, and they are many. They're, they're listed right as chapter 9 began. Proud of being chosen by him as the line through which the promised Messiah would come. They're zealous for God. And their zealousness for God is clearly identifiable in fully understandable ways. We rejoice with them in those blessings. And yet, by and large, Israel has not received his righteousness, God's righteousness, by faith in Christ, in their Messiah. Those two words are the same. Christ, Messiah, come from the same root. 
This is a warning to us, folks, and we need to pause and hear this warning as we read this simple statement about Israel. Too many Gentile believers are concerned to make sure that we don't teach that the church has replaced Israel as the recipients of God's promised covenant blessings. That's a point of real theological contention in the evangelical church. Many want to make sure that we don't teach that the church has replaced Israel as the recipients of God's covenant blessings. But more of us, I would say, need to be concerned to make sure that the church has not replaced Israel in the way that's being talked about here. That the church has not replaced Israel as ones who have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In the New Covenant community, we enjoy so many blessings from God. We sense them here in our fellowship as we gather week by week. Our time, over time, it can become quite easy for newer ones among us, for instance, or for our children. That's where I have a special concern. Even for those who've worked, walked with us for an extended season, it can become quite easy for all of us to enjoy these blessings without truly surrendering in repentance and faith to the one who's given them. And to surrender to the one through whom he's provided them. We'll get back to that a little bit later. But that's, that's just a place marker to put in our minds. This zeal, but not according to knowledge, is a troubling description. It's a category we need to be aware of and seek God by his grace. It's part of that understanding, hearing the expectations of God and recognizing, I can't do that. If we're saying we can do it, then part of that is going to be understanding all of the different ways that we might be zealous, but not according to knowledge. I don't know how to do that. God help us. Back to Israel here, though, in the text. What knowledge did Israel lack specifically? They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They lack knowledge. So what knowledge do they lack? The next four statement answers that question. Verse 3. Four, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. We've essentially been talking about it already. They missed exactly what we just identified. They missed what Paul has affirmed very clearly in this letter, Namely, that the righteousness of God is given to us by His grace as a gift. A direct quote from 324, that beautiful section on the gospel. They've missed the fact that God's grace, His righteousness, is given to us by His grace as a gift. They missed the very truth to which the law had been pointing all along. The simple principle of great profundity expressed so clearly by the prophet Habakkuk as the hinge verse in his prophecy in the Old Testament. Namely, those who are righteous by faith will live. That's the knowledge they lacked. Now, 
Now we come to the final four in today's text to get an explanation of that. The very Now this is the hinge verse in this whole paragraph. All the way from 9.30 to 10.13, chapter 10, verse 4 is the hinge verse on which this whole passage turns. A foundational theological principle that just reverberates with significance that's that's heard well beyond really the already ample parameters of this passage all the way to the very shores of the deep waters that Paul has been navigating throughout this section. It's a massively important verse and it's the reason why we've stopped at 10.4 and not gone ahead to 10.13. It's the, it's the, the primary reason for that. So the four that explains verse 3 and the knowledge that they lack is for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So, Israel has a zeal for God but not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the only source of the righteousness of God and that to be received only by faith. Now, let's unpack this a bit because this is a beautiful statement and we need to let this statement sink in like water into dry ground. The Greek word behind end here, a familiar word, telos, the Greek word uh, behind end could mean termination, finish end in that way, or it could mean goal, maybe outcome or result. It's going to be one of those two, though, prim primarily. There's kind of three different ones, but two of them mesh into one. Either this end is going to mean a termination, a finish. It's going to mean something like a goal or an outcome or result. The, the, the English word end has, the very, has a very similar semantic range to it. When you talk about something ending, it can either be coming to a conclusion or it can be accomplishing its goal. It, it, its end has been achieved. Well, in this context, it's not at all clear which of these meanings is meant, termination or goal. But I appreciate the work of Doug Moo here and many others, but man, it's, a, it's great to hear somebody who's resonated with this and then reflected on it deeply and crafted descriptions of how this works. It actually seems best to understand both of these meanings being present here. And that argued not just saying, is it possible that that's what he means, but actually arguing it from Paul's theology. What he's been saying so far in Romans and, and what he says in complementary passages in other letters, it really does appear as though we're supposed to hear both aspects of this word end. Christ is the end of the law here in this passage. A word picture, the analogy of a race course is helpful. The finish line is both the termination, the end of the race, it's also the goal of the race, to get there and to get there first. Similarly, it seems like Paul is implying here that Christ is the end of the law, meaning that he brings the era of the law to a close. We've been seeing that all the way back, these two aeons, the aeon of death and of life, the aeon of the spirit, or of the, um, the, the, the law and the spirit, the aeon of Adam, 
the first Adam, and then the Aeon of Christ. So Paul is implying here that Christ is the end of the law, meaning that he brings the era of the law to a close. And Paul is also saying that Christ is the goal of the law, the outcome of the law, the result of the law. He is that to which, that which the law anticipates or that to which the law is pointing. He's the end of the law in that way as well. He brings it to a close and he's the goal of the whole thing. That's why Mu uses the word culmination of the law. It's a good way to understand what Paul is saying here. Christ is the culmination of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's brought that era to an end, but he's brought it to an end by fulfilling it. Fulfilling the promises that were made and achieving on our behalf, on behalf of all who savingly believe, achieving the righteousness of God that the law promised but couldn't deliver. Bottom line, what Paul is telling us here is that because Israel has generally not understood that Christ has brought the law to its culmination, they haven't responded to him in faith. And they have therefore missed the righteousness of God that is available only in Christ and only on the basis of faith. At the same time, by ending the era of the law during which God was dealing mainly with Israel, Christ is now making righteousness more readily available for Gentiles. That's what we read here. That's the implications of verse 4, where it appears in this argument. That's some of that deep theology. Let's ask, what is our takeaway this morning? What is our takeaway this morning? Well, we need to recognize that reconciliation with God is available only in Christ. That's a simple truth, but it needs to be continually reaffirmed. There is no way to have a relationship with God, no way to be reconciled to the God who created this world and the God to whom we will all answer someday. There is no way to be reconciled to him apart from faith in Christ. We know that we can never deserve God's saving grace. We know that we can never earn God's saving grace. We know that in our strength, we can never even live in a manner worthy of God's saving grace, even after we have received it by faith. Anyone in this room who's walked with God for any length of time knows that. I can't sustain this myself. My walk with him is just as much by faith as my salvation was. In just the same ways that I need to trust in Christ to reconcile me to God, I need to trust in Christ to enable me to live consistently with that confession. We know all of this. We know it all. But in our lives, we still tend to read times of, say, suffering and hardship and struggle as God's disapproval. And often at those times, we believe that if we were just more consistent in our obedience, more faithful in our prayers, 
more diligent in our service, more loving in our relationships, and on and on and on it goes. If we were just able to do that better, we may not be suffering under the hardships that we're facing at the moment. It is so easy to go there. It's like we've never understood the book of Job. That book that we used as a touch point last Sunday. It's like we believe right along with Job's friends that innocent suffering isn't really possible. Like our suffering is always tied in some ways, great or small, to our unfaithfulness and to our disobedience. Now in a sense, it's the fact that we live in a fallen world that we continue to suffer, but what Christ is saying is, I have suffered in your place, and now your suffering is a point of identification with me. You're suffering with your Savior who is suffering. We still tie it to our disobedience, and if we were really walking better with God, we wouldn't be facing this. And if we believe that, if we believe that, and I don't think we do believe it, we just live as though we believe it. We have many different places where our convictions and our behavior don't really match very well. That's the human condition. But even though we believe differently than that, if that's the way we're living, then it's far easier to fall into the trap of living as though when we're experiencing times of God's blessing, when corporate worship is meaningful and deep, when fellowship with the body is marked by unselfish love, when our study of God's Word is yielding deep insight, It's easy for us to believe that somehow that's happening because we're deserving it. We've found our way into the depths of God's heart and we've discovered the combination to the vault of his blessing and so we're enjoying that. We put it on ourselves. If we're doing and living that way with regard to suffering, we're going to be really tempted to live that way with regard to blessing. But my friends, that's just not the way it works, is it? And this passage is a good reminder to us of that. That's just not the way it works. We don't earn God's saving grace by our good works before we've trusted in Christ as Savior, and we don't retain it by good works afterward. It's all by God's grace. That doesn't mean we live however we please. It's just the opposite. By no means shall we be enslaved again to sin once we've been freed by it, but we also don't think that the approval or disapproval of God is in our hands. It just isn't. Now, we look to God in humble repentance and faith, knowing that His righteousness, which His Word promises is given to us by His grace as a gift, which is received by faith. Israel stumbled over this simple truth, and so many can still stumble over it today. I believe we're especially vulnerable to this kind of stumbling in seasons of blessing, just like we're experiencing right here at Grace Church 
even though we've been touched by much suffering. And as I said earlier, I believe our children are uniquely vulnerable among us. Enjoying the blessings of such a time as this, such a season as this, but without understanding that they are fully just a manifestation of God's grace. We don't deserve it. We're not more special to God than any of his other people just because we're experiencing a season of blessing and a season of unity in our love for one another and our care for one another, a season of refreshment under the ministry of his word doesn't put us on any higher pedestal. It just causes us to give praise to God all the more. Our children need to understand that it's it's sweet and it's God's grace and that it's not just the norm that's happening at every single other church you might visit anywhere. And we're not the only place where it's happening either. The intent is not to do anything other than for those who are part of this body and recognize these things to understand them as the grace of God and not something we've earned. Hearing that, then, the answer is not to worry and fret about this misunderstanding in our children or anyone else among us. Any more than the answer would be to whisper among ourselves to make sure nobody does anything to mess it up. Rather, the answer is to give praise to God for his grace and to teach our children what it means to trust in him and to walk with him in the obedience of faith. That description that brackets this letter of Romans. To walk with him in the obedience of faith and to entrust ourselves to him in times of blessing just as we do in times of trial. We walk with him in the grace that he supplies. We pursue him in repentance and faith for the righteousness that is his and that is, becomes ours in Christ. Borrowing from the writer of Hebrews, here's what we do. We exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, as long as this life continues. We exhort one another every day so that none of us might be hardened. Rich word in Romans. This time it comes from Hebrews. So that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. My friends, that is a good closing charge for us today. We want to hear this text and go away doing something beyond just appreciating the depth of Paul's analysis of this question regarding the Jews. Then there it is. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Love one another in that way so that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin as Israel was. Hardened by it toward believing that somehow God is against us when we suffer. Hardened because we believe somehow we have deserved it when God is blessed. Now, that kind of misunderstanding is precisely what hardens us to the grace of God. Let's not let that happen. Let's take good care of one another by the grace which God supplies. And challenge one another toward this understanding that we receive his grace 
as a gift. And that gift develops within us, individually and collectively, the righteousness of God. Let's pray together, and then let's celebrate the sacrifice of Christ that has provided all of this for us. Musicians and communion servers, please join me at the front as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text of Scripture. It surely does stretch us in ways that we're not used to being stretched, and we're oftentimes not even comfortable being stretched. But Father, it also opens our eyes to some things we desperately need to know. Help us to hear them and to learn them and to embody them as the bride of Christ. Help us to enter into the fullness of this teaching, into the the freedom of the gospel that reconciles us to you and frees us from our sin, even though it doesn't free us from all of the suffering and hardship in this fallen world. But Father, right now, as we come to the table of the Lord, help us to celebrate Christ who has provided this great salvation by laying down his life and then taking it up again. But help us to remember in the way that we live together as the body and as we scatter into this world. For your glory, Father, help our zeal for you to be according to knowledge. And that knowledge is salvation by faith in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.